This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Glenn Fulmer. He is Director of Communication for the Baha'i Faith in the United States. Glenn, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Glenn, why don't we begin uh, at the beginning for our uh, listeners who may not be familiar with Baha'i. It's uh, one of the lesser-known religious um, affiliations in in our uh, diverse landscape, but uh, so few people know about it. Can you tell us what some of the basic tenets are and the origins of Baha'i? Sure. So the Baha'i faith is one of the most recent uh, world religions. It originated in the mid-19th century, uh, and it has now spread worldwide. So it's truly a global faith that has adherents that come from all backgrounds. Um, The basic tenet of the Baha'i faith, the central teaching, is the oneness of humanity, which sounds like a very simple concept on the surface, but has a lot of um, deeper implications. Um, so, for example, kind of at a spiritual level, if you think of the human race as, as spiritually united, that we, you know, there's one creator, one God, and that as a human race we've had a relationship with that creator that has unfolded over the ages and centuries of history. So we see also a spiritual unity among the religions. So we don't see the Baha'i Faith as a separate one religion among many, but rather as the latest chapter in an unfolding sort of uh, story of humanity's relationship with God. All right. And, Glenn, uh, one of the things uh, that our listeners might be interested in is how, how to understand, how, how did the Baha'i understand the concept of religion? Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, many people nowadays say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious, you know, and so right. they have a certain concept of, you know, what religion is, and usually it involves... Um, you know, the idea that there's, there's a priesthood, there's a congregation, there's certain rituals or sacraments that you have to subscribe to, um, and that's what they think of when they think of religion. And so they say, well, I'm not that, you know. And um, so it's interesting that the Baha'i faith has none of those sort of trappings of religion. We don't have clergy, we don't have congregations, we don't have rituals, we don't have sacraments, you know, and so we see religion as really kind of an unfolding and uh, dynamic and evolutionary force in human history, Um, and that some of these elements were required in the past. You know, so for example, centuries ago, a couple thousand years ago, when some of these faiths originated, literacy was not widespread, so you really needed a special class of trained, learned people to be the... uh, uh, caretakers of the scriptures, and, and, um, and they developed certain rituals or sacraments to symbolically represent some, some religious ideas, through, you know, and, and that's how they would you know, lead their congregations. But we see those things as things that, that really corresponded to an earlier stage of, of human development, and, um, and that really the human race as a whole has gone through these stages of childhood, of infancy, of childhood, and at a spiritual level, we're kind of approaching an age of maturity. And so in, in now seeing in the modern day when um, education is universal, literacy is universal, um, that you don't really don't need the role of a priesthood. And it's more about, um, so really then what's left? If you, if you remove all of these sort of trappings of, of religion, 
you know, what what's left? And that that's the the, the question I think that, that would be interesting. Uh, and I'd love to get to that, but I, I think we should also let people know the origins of Baha'i. You said it was in the uh, 19th century. Um, I, I think you said, <laughs> and um, yeah. and um, and but and I know uh, the uh, the location of, for the origins was what we now call Iran. And um, can you tell us uh, about the founding of Baha'i and the founder of Baha'i? Absolutely, yes. So the faith originated in the mid-19th century, in the 1840s. And what's interesting about that period of history was that there was um, um, a very profound messianic expectation. It was a period when people really worldwide, there were movements of uh, uh, both in the Christian world as well as in the Muslim world. Very interestingly, there was a coincidence that um, that these communities were reading their scriptures, understanding their traditions, and seeing that this was a moment of fulfillment. So in Christianity, you know, a lot of the Adventist denominations, um, you know, date back to that period of the 1840s, 1850s, when there was strong belief, you know, that Jesus was about to appear. People were selling their possessions, moving to the Holy Land. And then there was something called the Great Disappointment, you know, when it sort of didn't happen the way it was expected to happen. And, uh, and it led to the creation of some of these uh, newer denominations. The same thing happened in Islam, uh, very interestingly. You know that there was a messianic figure, the Mahdi, in, in Shia Islam that was expected, and there are certain movements within Islam that reflect uh, you know, that, that expectation. And so it was within that context that in Iran, which um, uh, you know, is, a, is a Shia um, country, um, there was a, a, a group of people that were expecting the return of, of, of the uh, Mehdi, the Shia Mehdi. Um, and then when this figure appeared um, by the name of the Bab, so that's the title that he took. He was a young man in his 20s. Um, and the Bab means the gate in Arabic. And um, this was in, in uh, 1844. And he basically took the role very similar to John the Baptist in Christianity, you know, or so he was kind of a herald, kind of preparing the way, saying, you know, um, calling people, saying there, there's an, a, a new messenger from God who is forthcoming and about to appear. And his message just galvanized uh, Iranian society at that time, and it just spread like wildfire in all classes of society, from the peasantry to the nobility to the clergy. Um, people embraced the message of the Bab, but it was very quickly um, seen as a threat by the established, um, you know, the the, uh, the monarchy and the, uh, the the clerical ruling class there, and so they attempted to to suppress and um, uh, you know they put the Bob to death by firing squad and something like twenty thousand of the early followers were were put to death, and shortly after that, one of his followers who was a, a, a Persian nobleman. Um, he took the title of Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God, um, and declared that he was the one whom the Bab had foretold. And uh, so he very quickly was, you know, even though he was of the noble class, he was stripped of all his possessions, he was banished out of Iran, spent the rest of his life as an exile, progressively further, you know, they just kept sending him away to further and further imprisonments, um, and uh, basically both the Persian and Ottoman governments sort of conspired to try to suppress this movement. And so Baha'u'llah was sent 
to the furthest penal colony in the Ottoman Empire at that time, which happened to be in uh, Ottoman Palestine, the city of Akka in present-day Israel. Uh, and that's where he ended up spending the rest of his days as a, as a prisoner. And he passed away in 1892. But within his lifetime, uh, all the faiths in that Middle Eastern region, so there was the, the Muslims, both the Shia and the Sunni, there was Jewish communities, there was Zoroastrian communities, there were Christian communities. Members of all those communities recognized Baha'u'llah's claim to be God's messenger for this age. And so already by 1892, it had turned into a universal faith that was attracting adherents from, from many backgrounds. Uh, Glenn, I wanted to ask, uh, if somebody becomes Baha'i, uh, is there any, you said there was no ritual, how does one become a Baha'i? And then one, once one, one is a Baha'i, how does it affect one's life, one's lifestyle? How does one participate in the religion? Yeah. So becoming a Baha'i is simply making a declaration of faith, saying you recognize Baha'u'llah as God's messenger for this day, uh, and you agree to abide by, by his laws and prescriptions. And so at a personal level, some of those laws, um, you know, in terms of spiritual practices, there is, um, an ex you know, daily prayer. Um, there's really, um, you know, we really understand that the words of these, we call them manifestations of God. So Baha'u'llah... Um, and Jesus and Muhammad and other figures in history are recognized in the Baha'i faith as manifestations of God. In other words, they were sort of perfect mirrors or exemplars of, and, and conduits of God's grace for humanity. And so their words are very powerful, you know, and they're kind of creative. They come into the world, and, and that's why we see that these scriptures like the Quran or the Bible, you know, have civilizational impacts. Over hundreds of years, they, you know, whole social orders and civilizations kind of take shape around these messages. Uh, so there's clearly something very powerful there, and it gets renewed from age to age. So we see Baha'u'llah's writings in the same light. And because he lived his life in, uh, you know, in present history, I mean, so his life is very well documented, and, um, his words were recorded as he spoke them. So that's something very unique in the Baha'i faith is the authenticity of the sacred scriptures. Um, they were published during his lifetime and they're extensive, you know. And so there's this idea that you're immersing yourself in the ocean of these words on a daily basis, you know, in the morning and the evening and, um, and you're saying uh, your daily prayers. Uh, there's a period of fasting similar to uh, Islam, similar to many other religions, you know, where you have that Lent, for example, in Christianity, so it's actually at the same time of the year. It's usually in in the, in, in the spring. Uh, there's a period of um, of 19 days of uh, dawn to dusk fasting. So these are some of the basic um, spiritual practices that you would do on a personal level. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an avoidance of alcohol and um, drugs other than for medical use. Um, there's a uh, a sense that you know sexuality really needs to be you know uh, uh, it's uh, expressed within the institution of marriage that that's really a building block of, of society that really is a very important and uh, and that's where where that impulse sort of belongs. Um, so these are some of the laws of sort of personal morality and and personal spirituality. Uh, but beyond that, and I think maybe we can get a little more into that, is just, you know what is the what is the social expression of the Baha'i faith, or you know how do you create a community 
when you don't have a clergy, when you don't have congregations, um, you know, and that's a very mm-hmm. interesting um, idea. So there's no congregations. You have uh, buildings, at least the one gorgeous building outside of Chicago. Um, are they not uh, places where people come together for various things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it depends how you define congregation, right? I mean, it's not that people, the Baha'is don't gather in groups, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or, or to celebrate holy days and that sort of thing. But you mentioned the House of Worship. That's where I work, uh, is in the vicinity of the Baha'i House of Worship for North America, which is located just north of Chicago in Wilmette. And it's the oldest extant uh, Baha'i House of Worship. It was built, um, the cornerstone was laid in 1912. Um, so, you know, there's, there's already more than a century of, of Baha'i history in, in North America. And, and this is considered a continental uh, house of worship. So there's basically seven and an eighth under construction now in Chile in South America. So eight of these sort of continental houses of worship that play kind of a unique role. Uh, when, I, when I say there's no congregation, um, it's the sense that there's no um, sort of uh, shepherd or, or you know, priest or clergy that's expected to sort of uh, look after the spiritual health of a, of a group of people. Or, you know, a lot, in other faiths, some other faiths, there's a sense that, that there's a special clerical role, uh, a sacramental role. In other words, they, are the, you know, they, they conduct the sacraments, and that becomes the conduit of grace, you know. So by, by, by partaking of these sacraments or rituals, that's how you tap into, uh, you know, God's grace or God's, uh, you know, sustaining power or whatever. Um, whereas in the Baha'i faith, it's clear that every individual has a direct conduit, you know, to the Creator and has a responsibility for their own um, study of the writings, um, applying the writings in their day-to-day life, and so rather than a kind of a congregational mentality, there's more of a uh, uh, sort of building a, co- a community where every individual is empowered. And um, so Baha'u'llah, it was very interesting that for the first time in religious history, the founder of a faith actually gave instructions about how the followers should organize themselves after his passing. And we know that in religious history, this has always been a very challenging mm-hmm. thing and has led to, you know, uh, very severe schisms, um, you know, almost immediately after the founder's passing. And for example, in Islam, where, you know, the day that the, that the prophet passed away, it, the, the schism between the Sunni and Shia began, you know, and, and because there was not a clear sense of, of succession, like what would happen next. In, in the Baha'i case, um, Baha'u'llah left a clear written will and testament, appointing his son, who then played a role as an expounder, uh, an authentic, uh, you know, giving um, explanations of of, of the writings. But then he also established um, what we call an administrative order, which is based um, on elections at the the local, at the national, and international level. And... um, so that's how Baha'is organize their, their communities. And, and these are lay councils, you know, that are elected, and Baha'i elections take place in a very spiritual atmosphere where you're not nominating anyone, you're, there's no candidacies, there's no platforms that you're running on, you're not promoting yourself or anyone else to run for office. I mean, all of those trappings of, 
what we would think of as elections are absent, mm-hmm. and the community just gets together in a, in a very spiritual atmosphere and in a prayerful atmosphere, and everyone simply writes the names of the, the nine people. These are councils of nine, the nine people that they feel you know best embody these attributes of humility and service and um, you know wisdom, and so sometimes it's the least uh, uh, allowed you know or, or aggressive personalities. That are actually elected, you know, to serve on these on these bodies, um, and then they, you know, at, at each level, whether you know, in every town and city where Baha'is live, and it's really all over. Like here in the United States, there's probably more than a thousand of these local assemblies, um, and then there's a similar process that uh, in, uh, that leads to the election of a, of a national spiritual assembly, also a body of nine. And there are currently more than 180 national assemblies around the world. Mm-hmm. And those assemblies meet every five years in Haifa. That's where our Baha'i World Center is. And they elect the Universal House of Justice, which is the supreme governing body of the Baha'i faith, also a body of nine. And, and, and that body was created you know, by Baha'u'llah and charged, uh, given the responsibility to legislate on matters that he didn't expound in his writings, you know, so that gives the Baha'i faith this measure of flexibility and adaptability, where there's a core set of principles, but then there's a system for intelligently applying them, you know, to adapt to different conditions, um, and and so that's that's the basic structure of how the faith is organized, and uh, so over this, you know, since 1840 until today. Basically, you know, the faith now is present. Like I said, there's 180 nations, more, I think 185 or something, where there is the selected system at the national level um, and, uh, and really reflecting, you know, the diversity of humanity in all its range. I mean, you know, thousands of tribes and languages that are spoken and people from all backgrounds in terms of their spiritual background. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn, here in the, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Glenn, I was wondering, in, uh, are you still, is the Baha'i, members of the Baha'i uh, faith uh, uh, still persecuted? Can you uh, openly be Baha'i? Can you have a Baha'i temple in Iran, for instance? Yeah, well, the situation in Iran is really um, unique in the world in, in terms of the ongoing persecution. Like I mentioned, that from the very outset, the Bob's message was seen as, as heretical, Baha'u'llah himself was then banished. You know, thousands of early followers were put to death. And that um, level of persecution has kind of waxed and waned, you know, uh, over the years. But uh, certainly uh, since the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, uh, where the Ayatollah Khomeini then became the leader of Iran and, um, and very clearly and openly said, you know, there's no room in the Islamic Republic for the Baha'is. And um, so from the very beginning of, you know, after the, in the early 80s, um, it was very, very severe where, you know, these elected bodies that I mentioned, these local assemblies and national assemblies were being kidnapped and put to death, you know, and then at the national level, the, the national assembly disappeared, another one was elected, they were executed, and then the whole administration was banned. Um, and, and then since then, uh, there have been hundreds of um, executions, ongoing imprisonment. At any given time, there there may be you know a hundred or more Baha'is kind of cycling through the prison system. Um, 
Baha'is, you know, legally they're sort of um, considered unprotected infidels, so they don't have any civil rights. You know, they, they, they can be denied inheritance rights, uh, licenses to practice professions. They're expelled from uh, universities. Um, you know, so all of these things. I think, you know, um, at that time, in the early 80s, really there was an, you know, an uproar around the world when this was happening, and there was a diplomatic effort you know, at the UN and the Human Rights Commission, at the national level, many governments, the German government, the UK, the United States, you know, the, the US Congress, there was a series of resolutions and uh, you know decrying uh, the, the persecution, and so it seemed like the Iranian government sort of moderated some of the more severe kind of just executing people, but has continued to try to, in in ways that don't attract as many headlines, you know, to basically eliminate the faith as kind of a viable religious community, mm-hmm. and yet it is still the largest non-Muslim religious community in Iran. It has more than 300,000 members uh, in Iran. Wow. Um, is there any historic relationship between Baha'i and Zoroastrianism, which also originated in Persia? Yeah, well, we, like I mentioned, that we really recognize um, you know, all of these major figures in religious history like Muhammad and Christ and Moses and Zoroaster is one of them as manifestations of God, as, as these unique beings, you know, that are, that, that are kind of sent by God really to guide and educate the human race. And so we recognize Zoroaster and actually Baha'u'llah himself um, was a descendant, had a, had a descendancy mm. from Zoroaster. Uh, going back to, his family was a noble family that went back to the uh, Zoroastrian kings and that sort of thing. So there, there definitely is a, a connection there. Right. I, I wanted to ask in um, Baha'i, what is, what is sort of the end goal in Christianity? For instance, you know, you live a good life on earth, and then you're rewarded by eternal life in in what's called heaven. Uh, in some of the Eastern religions, like Buddhism, uh, there, you know, there's uh, life after after death, but uh, there's certain uh, spiritual practices uh, one can. Uh, 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 participate in that lead to a state in, in this life of, of what would be called nirvana, enlightenment, that sort of thing. Well, what's the end goal in, in Baha'i? Um, it has many levels, you know. I mean, I think there's a sense that both individually, uh, as human beings, we can progress eternally. You know, there's no limit to our potential because God is... <laughs> inconceivably beyond our conception. And so we are on a journey to approach God ever, ever closer. We do that during this life, and we will continue to do that after we abandon our physical garment, uh, and we will progress into the world of God and continue to discover more and more elements and aspects of God's nature and His qualities and attributes. And when when it's said in the Scriptures that man is created in the image of God, it means doesn't mean that God looks like a human being, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that we're in the physical image of God, but that we are in the spiritual image of God. In other words, that the human reality is sort of a unique in the sense that it's like a jewel that can reflect all of God's attributes, you know, of love, of compassion, of will, of power, of knowledge. All of these attributes find expression in the human being. And so, yes, during this life, really our role is to do our utmost to... to um, uh, reflect and acquire these attributes, and then there's a sense that the human, the human race as a as a whole, 
is also on a, on a journey. Like I mentioned, it's a developmental thing where spiritually humanity has, has been through stages of infancy and childhood. And, and now we're at this, this is one of the core Baha'i teachings, is that we're living in a very unique time of history where humanity is sort of at the tail end of a very turbulent adolescence and trying to transition into a stage of, of maturity. And so what are going to be the hallmarks of that maturity? Um, you know, so you can think about an adolescent or a teenager who's been given the keys to the car and, and is tearing around and is not sh- sure how to handle these new powers and abilities. In some ways, you know, since the middle of, of the 19th century, there's been an explosion of, of knowledge and just the rate at which knowledge is being generated in all fields of human endeavor. And that's not a coincidence. I mean, this is something that, you know, that God is has been directing this process for thousands of years and we're at this moment of fruition where, you know, sort of the portals have been opened and scientifically and technically in so many ways where we've been given these new powers that now we have to catch up spiritually to be able to manage those things. And so the hallmarks of that stage of maturity is that the oneness of humanity, which has always been true, will now find expression you know, at a social level, you know, so what are some of the social implications of that principle of the oneness of humanity? Well, um, you know, that all forms of prejudice, whether it's on race or gender, you know, that all of those things are, you know, are basically ignorance and and they have to be abandoned. You know, all forms of prejudice have to be set aside, Um, that uh, men and women are spiritual equal. Now we have to express the equality of women and men in all areas. Women have to be equal partners in all areas of human endeavor, whether it's scientific or governmental or, you know, educational. Um, and that, um, we, you know, it's going to, you know, and, and that's why, you know, sometimes when, when, when people hear, oh, you know, Baha'is believe in world peace or it can seem very naive, you know, or utopian, or that's lovely that you believe those things, you know. And it's not based on, you know, some kind of blind faith or kind of like the hope that this paradise is going to descend by itself. No, I mean, there's, there's a real, um, very realistic sense that this is going to take a lot of hard work and it's not going to happen overnight. And, um, and you know, we've seen in history that with Christianity, with Islam, that, that these messages come and it takes two, three, four, five hundred years for the implications to unfold and for, and for new social structures and institutions and ways of thinking and new sciences to, to take shape around this new consensus, you know. And so we, we see that, that that's going to happen and that over the next two, three, four hundred years, we will establish the oneness of humanity. The, you know, Baha'u'llah said the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. So on one level, that is the end goal. You know, that we want to contribute to mm-hmm. help humanity reach that stage of, of its development. Uh, I, my limited exposure to, to Baha'i, um, I've always been impressed by the diversity of the people in it. And it sounds like uh, theologically and philosophically there's an attitude of inclusivism uh, that uh, I remember decades ago when I first met a Baha'i that I was surprised because I was used to religions having a very exclusivist attitude toward other religions. How, how does, is the general attitude among Baha'is toward uh, people of other religions? And um, are the 
constituents of uh, the Baha'i faith, um, at least in the U.S., as diverse as it it appears to be on the surface? Is what is the demographic breakdown? Mm-hmm. Sure, I mean at one level, you know, because we recognize the divine origin of all the faith, all the major faiths, you know, and we and we actually recognize all of those founders as. Essentially, Baha'u'llah said, you know, they regard them as one soul. You know, they all come from the same God for the same basic purpose. And so Baha'is are encouraged not only to study Baha'u'llah's writings, you know, which is the most recent in our mind, you know, uh, revelation from God, but but uh, also to study the Quran, also to study the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Buddhist scriptures, that, uh, that there's wisdom mm-hmm. and there's value, and that all of these are... You know, um, if you're in a curriculum at, in a university, it's like you don't abandon what you learned when you were a freshman or a sophomore. You know, it's like, you, you, you know, it's all building on itself. And that's also interesting because people will say, well, there's so many contradictions and so many differences in the way the faith explains some of these ultimate questions. How can you think that they're one? Um, but I think if you look deeper and think about it, about, you know, all the vast range of history and the different contexts in which these messengers spoke and, and uh, the different types of allegories and stories that they told to illustrate really um, very transcendental concepts. It's not surprising, you know, that there's been a, a, you know, a very wide range of ways of explaining the nature of God, mm-hmm. the nature of human, the, the human being, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, Baha'u'llah basically said, consort with the followers of all religions in a spirit of friendliness and fellowship. And that's our basic attitude: is that they're all like our brothers, and we, you know, there's, you know, behind participate, you know, at the at, at the local level and interfaith organizations. You know, we we um, love to have you know devotional gatherings where prayers and and writings are shared from from many religions. In fact, in the Baha'i House of Worship itself, um, you know, we don't have a clergy, but we do have. Um, you know, readers will come and just either chant or sing or recite, you know, these sacred scriptures, and they will use selections from the Bible or the right. Quran or other scriptures as well mm-hmm. in the Baha'i Temple. So we really see the continuity and the unity of all those things. Hey, Glenn, and, um, go ahead. Of, I'm sorry? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to answer the other question about the diversity of the American Baha'i community. Um, and that's, you know, one misconception might be that people have heard of Baha'i, of the Baha'i faith at all, they'll think, oh, it's, it's an Iranian faith, and it's a persecuted minority in the Middle East, so therefore the Baha'is in America, they're probably Iranian immigrants. Ah, immigrant ah. faith. And that's not the case at all. I mean, even in 1912 or in the late 1890s, the first American Baha'i was actually a Chicago-based insurance salesman, Thornton Chase, and, um, and already by 1910, there was a community of hundreds of American Baha'is, you know, uh, not immigrants, but people that were here who started traveling to Haifa in, 19, in the 1898 and 1912. I mean, people were traveling to Haifa mm-hmm. to meet Abdul Baha, you know, the son of the founder of, 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 of the faith. Um, so, you know, and then since then, I would say that the American Baha'i community reflects the U.S nation as a whole. I mean, we have the faith expanded very quickly in the, in the rural South in the 60s and 70s, so there's a strong African-American community in South Carolina and other parts of the country. Um, there is an Iranian uh, immigrant element to the Baha'i community, especially after the uh, 
Islamic revolution when people started fleeing, uh, you know, refugees that came out of Iran and resettled in different parts of the world. So there's probably around, you know, our population is, is about 180,000 Baha'is in the United States right now, out of which maybe 20 or so, 20,000 or so, are Iranian refugees. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's, you know, Hispanic, Latin American Baha'is, there's African American Baha'is, there's, you know, people that have come to the faith from really almost every background you can imagine. There's a strong Native American presence. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a Native American Baha'i Institute um, in the Navajo Reservation in, in Arizona, and there's a, 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 a deep, long history of Native uh, communities that have embraced the faith. Right. Uh, Glenn, could somebody actually still be a, considered themselves a Christian and also a Baha'i? Or uh, in Baha'i, like like Christianity and many other religions, you have to either embrace that religion or uh, to the exclusion of others. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, um, you you couldn't sort of be a formally a member of a of a Christian denomination or mm-hmm. congregation and be a Baha'i at the same time. Um, so you know, you become a member of the Baha'i faith. Um, now you can. Uh, participate in electing Baha'i institutions. You can um, give to the Baha'i funds. That's something that's restricted to Baha'is. We don't accept funds from anyone who's not a Baha'i. Um, so there's a, mm-hmm. you know, so there's certain prerogatives that come with, you know, with declaring yourself as a member of the Baha'i faith. Now you're you're participating in building this these institutions at the local level, at the national level. This pattern of community life. And so you wouldn't do that and also be a member of, a, of another congregation. But as I said, spiritually, I mean, you never abandon. The, you know, if you're a Christian and you become a Baha'i, many, many people I've heard say that they felt like their, uh, the depth of their relationship to Jesus and their understanding of, of Jesus' um, mission, you know, and their appreciation of the Bible, and, you know, if mm-hmm. anything is enhanced, you know. And so... Um, it's not like you reject or, or abandon, you know, your prior identity. Um, you know, it's almost, you know, the same way with if you're establishing world unity, um, you know, there's a higher allegiance, you know, that I, you know, I'm first, I'm a human being, you know, it's like I'm a citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I'm an American. I was born in Costa Rica. You know, I, I have attachments and, um, and, and that's fine. I mean, and, and that's necessary, you know, that, 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 um, you know, if you're an American, you know, you're you're a Californian or, or, or you're a Texan and you're proud of that, but that doesn't mean you're any less of an American. You know, sort of you can have multiple allegiances that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn, thank you so very much for your time today. Phil, any final uh, question? No, um, well, one, just uh, Glenn, how, uh, what would people do if they want to know more about Baha'i? Mm-hmm. Um, either uh, on a theoretical or theological level, is, is, can you give us the websites to go to, and what if they want sure. to look for anything locally? Yes. So uh, Baha'i.org is the main international Baha'i website, www.baha'i.org. Uh, has Play, perhaps you could spell it. So it's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. And it has a really wonderful treatment of all the Baha'i teachings and principles and access to all of this original writings of Baha'u'llah that have been translated into English, you know, are all available there. 
then the national Baha'i site is Baha'i.us, www.bahai.us. And um, through there, you can get in touch no matter where you are in the United States. There's a little form there where you can say, I'm interested in learning more. And um, so someone in that part of the country, uh, someone local to you will, will, will get in touch. And we have um, this community building process, this educational process that's open to anyone. You really don't have to become a Baha'i to get involved in this, but it's, it's a systematic study of the, of this writings. And I said, these are creative writings. These are very inspirational, touching writings that start having a transformational impact. And so you, you start studying, you know, these, um, the sequence of courses, and they lead to acts of service. So you may start a, a devotional gathering in your home, a prayer gathering where you're inviting your neighbors, or you may start uh, um, classes for the spiritual education of children, um, or you may be trained to work with um, youth or young teenagers. You know, there's a whole program for that. It's called the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program that's directed to youth, you know, like 11 to 14 years old, very critical time of life when they're exploring these spiritual concepts. And, and uh, uh, you know, so there's a whole pattern of community life, and many, many people that are involved in this process are not Baha'is, and they're not expected to be. You don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be open to, you know, uh, exploring uh, uh, um, these writings and their implications in your life and your family life with your children and so on. Very and, good. And I, I wanted to add, uh, if anybody listening in is in the Chicago area or is going to be in the Chicago area, uh, make a little trip out to Wilmette. My wife and I went to the uh, Baha'i uh, Temple there, and it's one of the most beautiful uh, architectural structures in North America. And uh, also uh, there's a facility there where you can learn more, uh, see a film and learn more about uh, uh, the Baha'i faith. Uh, Glenn, thank you so very much for taking the time today to come on, and uh, we wish you... Uh, Great success in the coming year. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.